Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message on the Elevate Church podcast. We believe that God will speak to you wherever you are. Now let's prepare our hearts and hear what God has for us today. Come on, let's celebrate a good God who's worthy one more time. And if you can, while you're standing, can you help me welcome everybody joining us online as well and also in the lobby. We love you guys. Go ahead and give away three high fives to your neighbors and then have a quick seat. So we are in week four of a collection of talks that we are calling Burning Questions. And we have been covering hot topics, things that a lot of people will will just kind of develop answers for these things that we are faced with in our world through an eight ball kind of theology. And then they'll just leave it at that and they'll never dive deeper. However, not you church. You church are searching for the truth. You're searching for what does God's word say? How should we approach these things that are happening in our our world? Because we also understand we don't get to just decide truth. We must discover truth. In fact, if you have not been here for this collection of talks, I would encourage you, if you're watching online right now, press pause, press stop, whatever you need to do, go back and listen to week one and week two because it will help set a foundation uh, for where we are, are going, especially today. Because we do believe that there is such a thing as truth, that Jesus himself is truth. He says, I am the way, I am the, the truth and the life. And so we believe that. And because of that, I think there has been a lot of bad education, indoctrination, bad teaching, even bad theology that has has gone throughout our, our world. And our world is leaning more and more and more into views like uh, postmodernism, pluralism, subjectivism, relativism. I mean, those are all running rampant in our society. And in fact, more than just being ideologies, they are being promoted and pushed with an aggression. In fact, at the, 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 the lowest levels, our children now have been talked to and indoctrinated perhaps with some of these ideologies. And if you know anything about the enemy, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And you know why he targets the children, by the way? He knows if he can get the children, then he can change the future. He can destroy generations to come. And I'm saying, no, we're gonna fight. We're gonna fight. And so that's why this series is critical because what we're doing is laying a foundation. What we are doing is hopefully realigning some of of what culture says and holding it up to kingdom principles and saying, how do these correspond with each other? And you should know this, my heart, uh, those of you that know me, is not to be controversial. Like I hate controversy. Let me just stay away from controversy. So this is not about being controversial or not. This is saying, I want to arm this church with with the weapon of God's word. Because when the storms of culture come and they are here, it's already here, then we need to have something that we can stand firm, something that can cause us to be rooted and anchored in our faith. And in fact, I just believe and feel convicted if I don't do this, just so you know where I'm coming from, then I have not been obedient to what God wants in this house. And so we're gonna talk about it today. And I wanna set this talk up from the backdrop of a conversation 
that Jesus had with his disciples about yeast, about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, how many of you know yeast can be both good and bad? Yeast is, is something that just a little bit of it can make a huge impact. And so Jesus is talking uh, and teaching the disciples through this. And while you're turning there to Matthew 16, by the way, I'm asking for a hundred of you in this room or in the next, the next worship experience to move from Sunday morning to Saturday night. I don't know if you've realized this, we are beginning our Saturday night uh, worship experience next Saturday, bringing that back 5 p.m. And I'm asking a hundred of you to move because what God is doing here is unbelievable. I mean, look around. I mean, the seats are full. There's people in the lobby. Parking lot is full. It is a problem. It is a good problem. And we thank God for the problem. But I'm challenging some of you maybe to make a small um, alteration to your schedule and come Saturday night instead of Sunday morning. And a little uh, decision could make such a huge impact in the lives of so many because what you're doing is opening up space and creating more and more opportunity for people to come and have an encounter with God and that's all that's our heart and just so you know Saturdays um, I love Saturdays personally there's something about Saturday night it just hits a little different like people are a little more loose I think on Saturday night get a little more raw people are, are hungry I don't know if it's for God's word or for dinner whatever the case may be there's just something different about it and I'd love for you to consider consider making a move to Saturday night Matthew 16 verse 6 says this be careful somebody say be careful be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast. Somebody say yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And here's what yeast is in this context. It is any deceptive teaching that sounds right, that sounds religious, that sounds moral. In fact, it is a teaching that promises if you buy into it and lean into it, you will be on the right side of history because you followed it, that you will be on the right side of culture, but it is apart from what Jesus teaches, or it is in addition to what Jesus has taught because the Pharisees and Sadducees were notorious for saying, okay, you can believe in Jesus the Messiah, but you also have to work hard. You also have to earn it. You also have to add these other things. And Jesus is saying, watch out, be on guard for Pharisee yeast. God, I pray that your word would come alive, that it would accomplish what you want it to. God, I pray again that you'd get me out of the way, that this is not my opinion. God, but that this is your perfect and holy word that we trust is flawless, and that we trust is our, our guide for living. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Bea. Thank you guys so much. Here's where we are going today. If you would like to write down the burning question of the day, ready for it? Where? did gender come from? Uh-oh, a little low rumble rumble in the room. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having this discussion with his disciples about a corruptive teaching that has permeated their culture, that was brought by the, the Pharisees, and it spread into culture like a cancer, not unlike what has been referred to in our culture as critical theory. Critical theory has influenced the educational system. It has influenced universities. It has influ influenced the, the medical system. It's obviously influenced politics, the news media, social media. And yes, 
It has also even influenced the church on some levels. How many of you have heard of critical theory? Now, maybe you've heard of critical race theory, and we're gonna talk about that in, in just a moment, but critical theory, here's a simple definition of it. It is a social and a political philosophy that focuses on identifying and overcoming social constructs that privilege some people and oppress others. This is the definition from the Encyclopedia Britannica online. This is, this is what critical theory represents. So critical theory sees the world as a bunch of different social constructs that are these power structures that the purpose of them or they are in place and they hold people in oppression. In other words, it's the way we historically and traditionally have organized society around, say, say marriage and the family. Say a, a, a family that these things that were once considered perhaps social norms in our culture are now being challenged on every level. And how many of you see that? Marriage is being challenged, right? Uh, family values, the family structure is being challenged. And it's those, those views of those institution that they are social constructs that are these power structures to hold people in oppression. Here's the problem with critical theory, it is in oftentimes direct opposition to kingdom theory, to kingdom principles, to the kingdom of, of God, to a biblical world view. And what we need to understand is critical theory in and of itself is a worldview. A worldview, if you don't know, is just a way that we approach and we see the world around us. And we all have one. Every single one of us, you have a worldview and it's based on your upbringing, it's based on your experiences in life, it's based on perhaps your education, your family, we all have a worldview and our goal, and our goal in this series has been to adopt uh, and, and help with a biblical worldview. That we are to approach the world through our Christian faith, through what God's word tells us. We are to see the world through those lenses. And it's again important to note that we all have a world view. We all have a way that we see the world around us. And the problem with critical theory and really other branches of critical theory, in fact, I'll throw up a diagram because there are many schools, many branches of this, this theory. Perhaps you've heard of critical race theory. That's one of them. There is queer theory. There is gender theory. There is intersectionality. And then there is also deconstruction. It's a, it's a, a, a school of thought with all these different branches. And the problem is once this yeast of critical theory permeates into a culture, like, and Christians get caught up in this as well, it's easy for us to put on the lens of critical theory and then to look to God's word to support those theories. And that's what a lot of people do. By the way, that's called proofreading. And that's no bueno. And I say that on Siete de Mayo, right? It's no bueno. I know it's not Cinco de Mayo, but we're close. That's not a good way to read God's word. In fact, what a lot of people will do is decide and determine what they believe to be true, and then they'll go to God's word in order to validate through some scripture that they pick and choose, which by the way, you are not allowed to do. You're not allowed to you know, choose parts of the Bible that you like and that speak to you and disregard the other parts that you don't like. It's not a buffet, all right, are you with me? The word of God is not a buffet that you get to pick and choose. But as followers of Jesus, that's not how we approach God's word. In fact, here's how we approach it. We say, you know what, God, I'm broken. I'm flawed. 
Like I make mistakes. I am a, a, a hot mess most of the time. And so I'm coming to your word and I need to submit my thoughts, my feelings. I need to surrender, right, my position because your word holds ultimate authority, not culture, not a, a critical theory worldview, but the word of God holds more authority than our culture does. And so we keep our eyes focused on God's word. And by the way, we always often uh, keep our eyes focused on Jesus in God's word. Because how many of you know, if you just read God's word and you miss Jesus, you miss the point of God's word. So we focus on Jesus. We make sure we, we follow him throughout God's word because he's there from the beginning to the end. And then we also let the Holy Spirit speak to us and guide us. And here's a word of warning. I would be very weary of people who do not have a relationship with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's role is to lead us and instruct us into all truth and wisdom. That's what Jesus says. And so when we open up God's word as followers of Jesus, we submit ourselves to it. We say, God, what does your word say to me? We ask God to identify in us anything that is contrary to what his word says. And if it does not line up with his word, show it to us, reveal it, help us to bring it out and lay it at your feet. It's called a process of, of sanctification and it's super easy to do. No, it's not, right? It's tough. It is a process for us. And we are all on a journey and we are all in different places on that that journey. But I say all that to, to say this, this will help clear the lens of your life, help clear the lens of our, our view of what we are experiencing. And as a lens, critical theory, what it does is it examines these traditional structures, like, like family, for instance. Family, uh, that a traditional structure and God's intent, you know, with uh, a mother and a father in the home, like two parents raising you know, their kids together, it takes those and it views it as a social construct that oppresses everyone else who is not privileged enough to have been brought up that way, have been privileged enough to be in those circumstances. So if you're a mom or dad and you're raising kids together, then you're part of the problem according to the development of this new world type of, of view because not everybody has that. And I understand that, but where God's word and critical theory differ is the Bible says, hey, you know, that's, you're not in, you know, that's not oppressive. Marriage and family, that was his original idea. That was his design. And so we know that things look differently all across the map, even in this, this room, single moms, you know, blended families. God's saying, like, we understand that. And so our goal as followers of Jesus is not to, to press people down. Our job is to elevate them, to bring them up, to say, how can we come alongside you and compassionately help you and walk through this with you? A critical theory they argue that people who don't have those circumstances, instead of trying to help them elevate their lives, they, they want to bring everyone else down. And that somehow by bringing everyone else down to that level, their level, that's evening the playing field. And I'm just telling you, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The lens of critical theory looks at biblical traditions on marriage between one man and one woman, a husband and a wife, and it sees it as a social construct that oppresses other people who do not want that for their lives because of their sexual appetites or their sexual desires or just you know, the direction that they are leaning into. And if you then support 
a biblical perspective, biblical plan for, for marriage according to God, then that somehow is oppressive to people around you. This is what critical theory does. It is yeast. It's yeast that permeates into our culture. And then also as a lens, and this is what we're gonna talk about today, critical theory looks at gender. And it looks at gender and says gender is a social construct. It is a man-made design that is a power structure that oppresses people who feel differently. And so critical theory teaches that what your sex is might be different than your gender. And here's what we're gonna unpack for the next few minutes, because according to God's word, if you wanna write this down, we don't believe that gender is a social construct. We believe it's a heavenly design. That's what we believe. According to God's word, according to our view, it's not a social construct, it's not something that was made up. This is how God created us and he is a wise and good creator. He is the, the maker of heaven and earth and of you and me. So how do we spot and approach this, this yeast of critical theory and gender? Can I bore you guys for a minute? I'm gonna bore you. Um, some of you are like, I'm already bored too late. That's okay. Critical theory uh, has been referred to what is known as applied postmodernism. Has anybody ever heard of the, the term postmodernism? Postmodernism was something that was popular maybe 10, 15 years ago, maybe even longer. And it was something that started really at the university level where this philosophy was kind of growing and trying to gain, gain some, some traction, uh, but then it kind of fizzled out a little bit. Well, now it's back. Postmodernism kind of went away and it's come back in the form of critical theory or critical education. Uh, and this is something that's been around for a long time too. Critical theory is a Marxist-inspired movement is what it is. And it started at the, the Frankfurt School, and you can go and dive into that more if you like. But critical theory really is the application of this postmodernism kind of, of movement. So what is postmodernism? Postmodernism, one of the, the mainstays of postmodernism is something called relativism or, or subjectivism. Relativism is this ideology that there is no right way to view the world that what's true for me might not be true for you, and what's true for you might not be true for, for me. That's what relativism says, that there is no such thing as universal truth, it's only individual truth. And, and I would encourage you to go back to week one in this, this, this series, because we went hard after this idea that you know my truth is my truth, and it doesn't have to be your truth. In fact, we said that Oprah, Oprah was a champion of this idea of relativism. In fact, back in the day, she would use her platform to teach people, even in a spiritual pseudo-Christian kind of way, that there are many roads that lead to God. And all you had to do is to find your path that led you to God. And we wholly reject that idea that there are many roads. We know that there is one way to God. It's through his son, Jesus, who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so that's what we believe. And you don't have to believe that. That's okay. But that's our, our biblical world view. And that's, you know, many people would say, well, that's elitist. You know, that's, you, you know, that there's only one way. And I don't think it's elitist at all. In fact, I think it's loving. I think it's merciful that God would tell you exactly how to have a relationship with him. That we don't have to guess. That we don't have to wander through this life. You know, is this right? Or what direction do I go? We don't have to wander with all this confusion. But God says there's one way 
to the Father. It's through my, my son. And relativism is where that phrase, my truth, my truth comes from. My truth might be different from your truth. This is relativism. And the problem with relativism is a little thing called reality. Reality. Reality and, and relativism, you know, always confront one another. Because here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that if you don't eat food, you're going to starve to death. That's the reality. And it doesn't matter, you know, what race you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you don't drink water, you're going to die. Are you with me? Like the problem with rel relativism is something called reality, that there are universal truths that really apply to everyone. And our belief is that God created those universal truths. So we reject relativism. We believe God is the source of truth um, and that there are principles he established that are not different from one people group to the next, from race to race or from, from male to female. We believe God is the source of all truth. And that his truth is not for some, it is for everyone. Again, feel free to disagree. Uh, with that, but we also see this play out in scripture when, when Jesus has this encounter with Pontius Pilate. I don't know if you remember it. He's going on trial with Pilate and they have this, this dialogue and Jesus tells him, I am truth. I'm the truth. And, and Pilate says this, what does he say? He says, um, you know, who can know truth? Who can know truth? Like, uh, like you know, what is truth? I, I think that's what he says. And how many of you know he's asking the wrong question? Because he's asking, you know, what is truth when he should be asking who is truth because the embodiment of truth is standing right there in front of him and he's looking into the eyes of truth and he still can't find truth. You know why? Because he's looking for truth inside himself. And anytime you start to look for truth inside yourself, you are in effect putting the Savior on trial of your life. Did you know that? because you are making a religion in and to your, yourself, in and of yourself, thinking that's where truth comes from. But we don't believe that. We believe Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. There is a universal truth that has been established by God and it's greater, it's greater than individual truth. In fact, we reject that, that notion. Here's another way to spot yeast of critical theory. Uh, it's in something that's been described as the hardware slash software problem. Hardware, of course, is the, the physical body God gave you. It's the body that you see when you get out of the, the shower and look in the mirror and some of you are like, eh, I'll rock what I got, right? You know, I get you, I, I understand that. That's the hardware that you have. The software is the person inside of you that people would say that's the emotional side of you, that's the, the feeling side of you, that's the, 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 the thoughts inside of you, what we would call in the Christian faith your soul, your soul. And the debate uh, over hardware, software, it goes back to something called Gnosticism. And it's this philosophical ideology that is the belief that there is this disconnect in your life between the hardware and the software. In fact, Gnostics believe that your body in and of itself was completely evil. It was evil and it was completely disconnected, but somewhere deep down inside of you was the divine spark of, of God, but there was no connection between the two, between your body and this divine spark deep down inside of you. In fact, Gnosticism is something that Paul uh, in the epistles refutes over and over and over again because in the early church, there were all these bad theologies and bad you know, ideologies you know, about, about Gnosticism, these crazy practices, like they would 
eat certain things or they would, you know, make sure that they were chaste. This is where, uh, you know, the, the priesthood started to originate out of. This is where celibacy has come out of, but the early form of Gnosticism was an attempt to deny everything, everything in life so that you could somehow one day maybe locate this inner thing, this divine spark God had given you to deny everything around you, that there was this complete disconnect. In fact, later forms of Gnosticism swung the pendulum in a radical direction, and this is what it said. Well, if the body is not connected to my soul, then I can do whatever I want with the body. I can have all kinds of naughty fun with my body because it's not connected and there are no repercussions to, to that at all. And I, I think that this is the early stages of the belief that you know this hardware software issue, that there's this disconnect is the foundation of what we know as gender fluidity. It's just not connected to one another. Um, all that to say that there, this Gnosticism believes that there's this disconnect, it's this belief that you get to choose your own gender based on the way that you feel inside. And how many of you know this has run rampant in America? It's all over the place, we see it. It's here, it's in our nation, it's in our schools. In fact, they are teaching children on a very early level, maybe not so much here, but in other parts of our, our nation at a very early level that you get to choose your gender. And Paul refutes this wholeheartedly. In 1 Corinthians 6, when he talks about sexual sin, he says this, do you not know that your bodies are the temple, the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So watch this. Therefore, here's what we have to do. We need to honor God with our body. In other words, you can't separate what people say is the real you from the embodied you. They're not separate. You were made in the image of an almighty God. And I believe he did not mess up when he created you. And he created you body, soul, and spirit. They are not disconnected. In fact, Paul says in the verse before this, he, he starts talking about you know all these other sins. Se sexual sin is different because all these other sins are outside the body, but sexual sin is something that's inside the body. It affects your body, it affects your, your soul. They are not disconnected. And then here's the last little bit of yeast that influences this discussion today is the yeast of individualism. And here's what individualism says. It says the more that you, you move away from the traditional structures of family, from the traditional structures of these, 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 these constructs in our society, the more you begin to discover your true self. In fact, it, individualism says that, that when you, the, the, the worst thing that you can do is deny your feelings. Deny the way that you feel. How many of you know, like, there are times where we feel things that we should not, you know, follow up on those feelings? Are you with me? Like, all of us have things. But individualism says you don't have to deny that. You just do whatever it is that you feel like. And that yeast is extremely contrary to the kingdom of God because God's word says this in Matthew 10, 39, like, hey, it's whoever finds life will lose it. And if you lose your life, that's when you find it. Individualism says it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. No, God's word says it's about we. It's about surrender, it's about sacrifice. It is not about me. It's about what God wants to do in and through my life. So let me wrap this part of it up. The yeast of critical theory, when applied, 
It promotes this ideology that gender is a social construct. That's what it is. It's a man-made idea. It's made up, and it, it is oppressive to people who do not fit into this category. And that biology is no longer a determining factor in who you are. That's what it believes. And that is the, the theory that has really run rampant in our culture. And so here's what God's word says, because I want to talk about, that's my timer. It's really not my timer. <laughs> I want to talk about what God's word says is his design for gender. Are you ready for it? Is everybody okay so far? Okay. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Here's the first thing we need to understand. Write this down. God is the designer and creator of everything, of everything that we see. Like this has to be our starting place because if we don't believe that, then we can just throw this whole thing out. Like God is the designer. He created us. He created them male and female, he says. Critical theory attempts to remove the God factor out of the equation of, uh, of creation and buy into the, the whole evolutionary type of existence and that out of evolution came these social structures like gender that came into existence and now they are oppressive to people. And it's an old school way of thinking and it's not you know, you know, relevant for us today. Of course, that's not how we view it. We bring God into the equation and say, no, we did not come from some you know, cosmic bang that we are here on purpose, with a purpose that God created us, that he knit us together in our mother's womb, and he designed us for this world that we are living in. And of course, we have to start there. This has to be our starting place. And so the second thing is this, that as the creator, write this down, God has the final authority on who we were made to be. God does. God does. And I don't think he made a mistake. God does. The world teaches us that we are our final authority. <laughs> that my emotions, that my feelings, that my desires are my final authority. And if I would just follow those with my life. You know what? I followed my desires before in the past. They didn't end up anywhere good. But the world would have you believe that you just follow those. And we say, no, God is the creator. And as the creator, he has the final authority in who we are and also who we are becoming. Because all of us are becoming. We're all in different places, again, on this, this journey. And he's constantly growing us and developing us. Mark 6, Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus, he's affirming what God said in, in Genesis about the design for marriage and family. And he says this, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So God is the final authority in who he created us to be. The, the third thing is this, write this down. God created us. So this is simplified, I know, male and female. Male and female. And this is where we say are eight. God design, not a social construct, not something that's man-made. In fact, if you study this, you find out that he made them male and female and he made them from the same source, but he made them opposite for one another. 
for one another. So it's, 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 it's biology as well. It is this nature in and of itself that we were made from the same, but we were also made opposite for each other. That's a design that God gave us. And he goes on to say this in verse seven, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his, his wife. Gender is for the other. And through marriage, it creates this new authority structure called the family. I'm not going to get into this today, but there are three kind of authority structures that God establishes that we read about in his word. Of course, him, he's our main authority. And then there's this family authority that's been created in his word and also a governmental authority as well that we all have lanes that we are to operate in. The problem comes and chaos comes when we get outside of those lanes, when we start operating in other lanes of authority and that we can talk about that later. But did you notice that the family structure in that verse, it said a man will leave his father and mother be united to his wife. The two will become one. They will start their own new family together so listen, some of you in the room with some overbearing in-laws, let me help you out today. That's no longer your family authority structure, right? You became one together. You form a new family, leave and cleave. Come on, somebody. Sometimes you just need to tell your mother-in-law, leave and cleave, girlfriend. Like, I know. I don't know. I don't know. I love my mother-in-law. But when you get married, you create this new family authority structure that God designed, God established. In the plan of God, God made you man and God made you a woman. And again, we don't believe he made a mistake when he did that. Male and female, it wasn't an accident. Both sexes were divine by God. They are opposite, but they fit together. They are for one another. It is not a social construct that the yeast of crit critical theory would love for us to buy into. Here's the fourth thing. God created us mind, body, and spirit. Meaning we can't separate the real you from the embodied you. Like this is the hardware, software type of, of, of issue that we are, are connected. That whatever the hardware is that God gave you also tells a lot about, you know, the software that you have. Like how many of you know, men and women are different, not just biologically, we're just different sometimes, right? The way that we, you know, handle things, like the way that men don't wanna ask for directions, you know, any place, and the way that women are more compassionate and caring and, and nurturing, like that's, you know, and, and those are generalities, and I'm not gonna stereotype people, I know there can be, you know, differences in that, but culture says your psychology is the highest form of authority in your life. And so something in your psyche tells you that there is a disconnect between the, the hardware and the, the software and what you see in your body and what your psyche is telling you, then you give into your psyche. And that's God's word says, no, we don't do that. That God didn't make a mistake when he created you the way he created you. When he created your body, he did not make a mistake that the biology determines your, your gender. Your gender, both male and female, came from God, who is a good designer. And if you'll trust in that, if you'll trust in what God's word says, even when your feelings and your psyche tell you differently, I'm just telling you the blessing in your life is on the design of your life. The way that God wired you and created you and knit you together, the God-given design. And so I say all that to say, here is the enticement, the yeast of critical theory. Because critical theory was set into place to identify real problems. And it does, but it brings 
problematic solutions to those problems. And instead of bringing problematic solutions, what we need to bring are God's solutions. And unfortunately, the church has been silent on this. The church has been maybe judgmental historically on this, and we should own up to that. But we need to address problems biblically. We need to address them with God solutions. And one of the problems that we need to be better at addressing is something called gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is when a person's inner self doesn't feel like it matches up with their outer self. Doesn't feel like it matches up with their physical body. It's the the hardware software. It feels like the hardware that God gave them does not line up with the the software God gave them. For example, it's the the biological male who was born biologically male, that when he looks in the, the mirror, right, he feels that there is a disconnect. He feels differently from the way that God created him. It's gender dysphoria, and it causes people to feel literally trapped inside of their own bodies. And here's what I need to say about this, that people who experience gender dysphoria, God loves you, with this unbelievable love. God cares for you. God is compassionate. You are deeply loved by an incredibly gracious and good God who has good plans for your life. Like I want you to know that and you need to hear that. If you are experiencing those those feelings, like, like feeling that way is not a sin. Struggling with things in our lives are not a sin in our life. And it's not always clear why someone you know, experiences gender dysphoria, the, the cliche answer has been, well, there was some traumatic event in their life. There was, you know, or a, a bunch of events that led to, you know, where they are today. And it's the same questions that, that apply to depression and anxiety. We ask why are some people more prone to depression than others? Or why are some people more prone to anxiety than, than others? We don't have simple answers and clear answers for why, you know, people experience a gender dysphoria, but it is a real thing. It's a real thing, and we need to acknowledge that. And the reason we need to acknowledge that is because when we talk about transgenderism and we talk about gender dysphoria, we are not talking about issues, we are talking about people. People whom God so loved that he sent his one and only son to die for. So everyone you lock eyes with in this world is someone God loves deeply and cares for so much that he would send what's most valuable to him. And so we need to remember that. Because a lot of times people with gender dysphoria, uh, others look at them with disgust or condemnation. And it's just not the way God sees them. It's It's a real, real thing. And a lot of times people have been pushed away from the church when they should be brought into the church. They've been given condemnation and pointed at, and they should be given care and compassion and love so let me finish with, with this thought. How do we, how do we, and I'll have the band come help me out, how do we as followers of Jesus, how do we love people but also honor God at the same time? Because that's, that's the difficulty. And there's all kinds of, of, of different schools of thought uh, across Christianity about this, but one of the things that we can do, and I believe is okay, is that we can respect people by using the name that they choose to be called. And I know some people push back in this area and just say, well, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up with Bobby and I always knew him as Bobby. And then, you know, he went through this and changed this. And what I, can I tell you something? 
it's not a biblical issue. Somebody deciding that they want to be called something is not a biblical issue. I'm not really sure God cares all that much about it, to be honest. And one of the ways that we can respect and love people is choosing to call them. Like, how many of you know, it used to be growing up, there are names that were predominantly boy names that today are predominantly girl names. Is that not true? Like, like Sandy used to be a boy's name. It's predominantly a, a girl's name. Like, I'll, I'll own up to it. Colby. I know girls and boys named Colby. All right, I'm just saying. Throw that out there. Like, Pink used to predominantly be masculine back in the day. A hundred years ago, it was masculine. And then blue was feminine. And the reason why is because pink was decided it was more bright and bold and blue was softer. All I'm saying is those are, that's social stuff that changes, that changes. So I think we can respect by somebody by saying, all right, if that's the name you want me to call you, that's the name that I'll call you. Here's where it gets tricky, is what gender do we recognize? And here's my personal opinion that I believe you can respect the person treating them with love and kindness and dignity, using the name that they ask you to. But I also believe you can honor God by saying, I understand what you feel. However, I believe you were created by God. And in love, I am going to honor God's design on your life. God's design. Because he's the designer. And in love, not, this is not to make you mad. This is just saying, I don't believe, and I care about you enough to, to say, I don't believe God made a mistake when he created you male. I don't think God made a mistake when he created you, you female. And again, it's not an ascent to experience uh, gender dysphoria, no more than it is to struggle with depression, anxiety, or other body image dysphoria like anorexia. It's not a sin to, to experience those and feel those. So when we move into a place of acting on that, that brokenness in our life, that we begin to miss the mark. And missing the mark, just so you know, means we are just missing out on what God's best is for us. That's what sin means. It's an archery term. We just, we've missed it. We haven't hit the, the bullseye. And all of us miss the mark in our lives. And so here's where I want to finish up. People say, Colby, why on earth? Why on earth are we even going down this road? Why open up this can? Why talk about, you know, gender? Why talk about these, these burning questions? And here's what I would just say. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm just, lately I've just been triggered by some things that are happening in our nation. I feel maybe some of it is I feel a little bit emboldened by you because I feel like this is where some of us are and we are, we are desperate for somebody to say, all right, like what do we do with this? How do we walk through this in our, our world? And here's ultimately what I would say. I believe it is a prophetic word that is preparing us for a fight, a fight. Uh, that's what I believe, not in a bad way. In fact, here's what I'm saying. I am willing to fight for your children, for my children. I'm willing to fight for the next generation. I'm gonna fight for who I believe God has called us to be in this city and beyond. Like, if you don't feel like a fight's coming, like, can I just, here's what we used to say is, you know, we're, we're a few years behind the West Coast. Like everything in Erie just happens a little bit later. There's a, a bill 
that's sitting on the governor's desk in the state of Washington. And how this turns out, and I don't want to argue the finer points of this with anyone, but the fact that it's there, the fact that it's there, that says a 13-year-old who feels like they're abused at home potentially because their parents don't agree with the lifestyle will not put them on you know sex changing medications and blockers and therapy and all that kind of stuff that will then say that they are abused that runs away from home that the government can not saying they are but this is the bill the government can shelter them and give them medical treatment and not tell their parents where they are you can't get a tattoo in Washington unless you are 18 somebody tell me that's I don't know I don't know see I think that the enticing thing of critical theory is that there are real problems in this world there are real problems but here's what our world does it says if you feel broken on the inside then just let us break you on the outside and we'll break you on the outside so that it matches your inside and so that everything will be okay. And can I tell you when that happens, you do the research, you look at the stats and you see if that does not cause more pain and frustration. In fact, to a body that's constantly feels like now there is a wound and it wants to go back to its original state and design, like you look it up for yourself. And aren't you glad though? Like we don't serve a God who says, you know what, if you feel broken on the inside, then let us change the outside. We serve a God who says, I don't work from the outside in, I work from the inside out, and I have the ability to change a heart, to change a soul, to change a mind, to change emotions, to bring healing and restoration. Come on, that's what we believe. And that's why we're doing this, and that's why, come on, stand to your feet, that's why we just believe that God is preparing us for something. And again, it's not to be controversial. If anything, if anything, it's to protect families and homes and to bring people in and say, we love you. There's a God who loves you, who cares for you, who designed you, put his finger on your life, who knit you and formed you in your mother's womb, who made you for, for something before like you were ever made. Like he made a thing for you to do and then made you designed to, to fulfill that thing. The, the good works that he prepared in advance for you and we just believe that. And so how do we lead people to that moment? And so let's do this. Would you just bow your head, close your eyes. The first group of people I wanna pray for are those who experience hurt and all this emotional distress, who feel like perhaps there is a disconnect between what you feel like in your body and your physical body. And our heart breaks for you. In fact, there are parents in this room that are heartbreak for their children, perhaps, that feel that way. And I pray that God will give us wisdom and peace and understanding and how to approach and love and care for those in our lives or even those in this room or watching online we're experiencing any kind of dysphoria. So God, I pray that you would come around them with an unbelievable amount of love, 
and mercy and grace. Because we are talking about things that hold such tremendous weight for not only this life, but the life to come. In fact, we are all sinners. We all have things in our life, God, that if weren't in our life, our life would be so much better off. And so I pray that we would be open and honest about those. In fact, some of us here, we have, I think the difference between followers of Jesus and those who don't is we've allowed Jesus to cover once and for all those sins in our life. And there are those in this room who have never done that, who have never allowed Jesus to pay them for their sins. And he stood in the gap. He took the punishment so we would not have to experience a separation from God one day. And when we confess him as Lord, we believe in our heart, the Bible says God raised him from the dead, we would be saved. And if you've never done that, that's where the starting place is. And that's where this all stems from. And then the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives inside of your life and leads us into understanding and truth and wisdom knowledge and helps us grow and I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now with every head bowed every eye closed if you have never crossed that line of faith and said Jesus I need you to be my Lord and Savior I'm a sinner and I need a Savior it doesn't mean you're perfect it doesn't mean you have it all together it just means you're ready to surrender your will and your ways to God's if that's you right now, no one's looking around, would you raise your hand wherever you are in this room? I just wanna see who I'm praying with. Just say, here I am, God, I need a savior. I need to be set free, I see you, I see you, yeah. I need a savior to cover my sins, past, present, and future, once and for all. Yeah, God loves you, God loves you. You put your hands down and you pray this out loud. You can whisper it in your heart, God knows. In fact, our church, we're gonna help you pray together trusting that God is doing a work in your life right now. You can say something like this, Jesus, I give you my life. I confess you as Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Make me new. In your name I pray. Thanks for checking out this week's message on the Elevate Church podcast. We hope you really enjoyed it. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. Welcome to the family. We would love to know about it, so please let us know by going to elevatechurch.com yes. There will be some practical resources to help you as you start this journey. If you want to support the mission and vision of Elevate, go to elevatechurch.com give. Thank you for living generously. We hope you enjoyed this message. Have a great week.